Good morning. Um, Pastor Martin and his family are away uh, for the weekend. They're, they're at a wedding uh, for family. And so we pray that they have good rest, uh, but that also means I have an opportunity to be here with you all. And this month has been very interesting for me because I'm usually um, with the children, uh, so with trees and then with the youth group, and I kind of catch the tail end of the service here sometimes. But it's great to be here together uh, for this month. Um, trees and Sapling, it is good to see you guys. The youth students, they are so solid right now, helping with different areas of the church. And uh, for me, that's been a joy to see families worship together, serve together, um, and sit under God's word together. Um, one quick second, because Pastor Martin, if you guys haven't noticed, he's really big on tech stuff and using things, and I am, I am not. It's kind of backwards, so I just want to make sure I have everything great. Great. Um, so this month, we've been talking about head, heart, and hands, what it means to worship God with all three of these parts of our lives. Um, but really, it's worshiping God with all of who we are. And trees, the one thing I remember when I first came to New Vision, I was so impressed and so surprised by, and it's probably a testament to the teachers and even to Pastor Susan, um, who, who have been serving for so long, that the students were so excited to talk about rules. And it was so weird to me. They're, they would all sit and they want to share rules and they all know our first rule and we've kind of seen and like if they could do it without it on the screen, uh, but it's to worship God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And really that's what we're talking about when we talk about head, heart, and hands. Um, still not sure, still checking. Um, but again, uh, for those of you who have been here, this is now old, but maybe uh, some of you need a refresher or it's a first week. We have materials for the children to kind of engage and we don't expect them to memorize all of the points or really to follow everything. But if we can anchor just a few points throughout the sermon that maybe even if you go home, you can bring up and talk to your children. Uh, so we have these materials. If you don't have them, if you're missing things, they're outside, so you can kind of slip out and help yourselves at this point in the service. And thank you to Kathy, who um, brilliantly makes all of our worksheets and things for us. I think there's some feedback. I'll be honest, when I first heard that, I got really scared because it was really loud. And then I started watching all the children kind of jump. Um, but yes, that's our cue for the children to know that this is a point for them. And uh, these are our stickers. They have to do with the heart, uh, and they get prizes at the end of the service that they can collect over there. Trees and sapling students, I have some information for you guys, some important. Can I have all of the trees and saplings eyeballs and your attention? Yes. So next week, we have outdoor service, right? We're in a park, so we're not going to have our binders but I still have prizes for you guys. And the way we're gonna do it is you're gonna help mom and dad, right? Because if we're doing head, heart, the last one is hands. And so I want to see trees and sapling students helping mom and dad. And maybe that means just getting up and you know, not fussing so much, maybe getting up and getting ready and um, yeah, not wanting to change multiple times or not waiting to the very last second to say, I need to use the bathroom, whatever it is. And mom and dad are going to come. They're going to find me at the picnic service, uh, at the outdoor service, and they're going to tell me, do you get the prize? So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Um, oh. oh, and yes, we have 
prizes for students who come on time. I think the first or after we told everyone that second week, we had so many people come early and now it's kind of died down. So maybe we need to incentivize a little more so that children can want to come here more. Uh, I know that's more work for parents, but it often is when we try to engage our children to worship with us, to serve with us, and to work with us. Sorry, I'm, I'm really like, I feel like Pastor Martin and I should swap and I should have a lot of trouble with this. Great. And so today we're talking about the heart and we're looking at Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 to 9. And I'll be honest, when, when I heard that we were going to have families read the scripture and uh, even children read the scripture, I was a little concerned because there's some harsh language in here calling people hypocrites, saying that they're far from, um, yeah, far from God, and even saying that if somebody dishonors their mother and father, you know, the penalty is death. And there's a lot of heavy language. But all this heavy language reflects God's desire for us to worship him with our hearts. Now, I have just one more quick logistic. Sorry, can you go back? I accidentally pressed, yeah. I clearly don't use technology when I preach. Um, I have a quick tip, and children, young, trays and saplings, this might help you. The stickers help you know when the sermon is ending. When you have sticker number three, you know the service is ending soon, right? Parents, I'm sure this is also helpful to you. Amen? Amen. Yes. And I have one more tip. Everyone, if you have a hard time paying attention, because raise your hand if sometimes you have a hard time paying attention. I do too. I do too. It's a lot, of, a lot of shy and dishonesty right here, but it's hard to pay attention. But here's the thing. When I share about a phrase that helps me to love people, you'll know we're coming to the end. When I share a phrase that helps me to love people, that's kind of a signal. Now, when we talk about the heart, the heart is often misunderstood. Um, can you go back one more? Oh, see, uh, back to, yes, thank you. Uh, when we talk about the heart, when we talk about the heart, a lot of times we misunderstand the heart. When we talk about heart, the first things we might think about are our feelings, our emotions. And these are good things to talk about, but I think if we stop there, we're really cutting it short. We're really just viewing a shallow part of what it means to think about our hearts. See, our hearts represent our values, our will, our passion, our purpose, our sense of identity. It runs deep into the core of who we are. But a lot of times, if we simply think of heart as feelings and emotions, there's a huge divide between head and heart. A lot of times, people might say, I'm more of a head person, or I'm more of a heart person. We have things like the Myers-Briggs Index, um, where we have thinkers and feelers, and there's this huge divide between people who think and people who care. But the thing is, the heart runs so much deeper. And God made us all with our minds, and God made us all with our hearts. And so no matter where your personality is, no matter what your preferences are, heart and, hands, uh, heart and head are things that we must all consider. Another thing about heart, and I find myself saying this a lot, specifically in the youth services, the heart is a lifelong journey. A lot of what we talk about as Christians, it's lifelong, sanctification, learning to love people, learning to be patient, and the heart is just like that. And I'm so glad that this is what we're talking about in Together in Worship. Because even if you're age three, four, you can learn to use your heart well and to worship God with your heart. Even if you're 50, 60 plus, you can still learn to love and to use your heart well. 
And actually, we learn from each other, and that's the beauty of coming together. But you see, here's the challenge. We can say all of those things, but our society gives us no time to actually think about the heart. It's actually the last thing on our minds, the thing that maybe if we have time, maybe when we're on vacation, we can kind of think about the heart, but we live in a fast-paced world. We live in a world where the world is getting smaller and smaller and communication is instant. And so to stop and think about the heart seems like a big waste of time. And you see, this is the first point for our students, is that the heart takes time. The heart takes time. Not just time chronologically, but time in terms of intentional effort, time put aside. A lot of heart issues don't just fix themselves. This happens in sibling dynamics, in friendships, even in parenting, even in education systems, in healthcare, in politics. The core issues are the hardest ones to deal with and they take the most time and effort. And treating just symptoms, treating just what it looks like won't solve the problems. And so the point I want to kind of emphasize before we even really get into this is that the heart is crucial to address. In a fast-paced world, it's simply easy and more convenient to say, as long as I know the right things, and as long as I do good, I'm fine. Who cares about passion, heart, and the things that go on inside? As long as I can attain the things that I want or think I need, I should be good. That's the world we live in. And there's been kind of a shift in the tide, but even when we think about masculinity, talking about the heart, it's a waste of time and it's weakness, right? Especially in Asian American cultures, talking about the heart, it's like, when is the, the first time, I think this is a really interesting icebreaker, when is the first time your parents said they, they loved you, like, or they hugged you, or they said they, they were proud of you? Issues of the heart are often overlooked. And you see, the Pharisees, the ones that, we're, that we read about in this passage, they completely disregard the heart. To give you just a, an idea of what's going on here, um, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they do this a lot in the Gospels. And it seems like they're just asking a question. And sometimes, honestly, if we read it like that, and we see Jesus' response, we're like, Jesus was kind of like fiery and very just like, wanted to stab at them a little bit. But the truth is, when it says here that the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, right, they made their way from like the hub of like religion all the way out to where they normally wouldn't to address this problem. And when we think about it, right, it was hand washing that they were coming to Jesus to talk to him about. They weren't upset with the disciples, the ones that they were saying, your disciples aren't doing this, but they were actually pointing to Jesus. An equivalent of this would be um, if like a SWAT team came to stop us every time we jaywalked. I was in New Jersey for a year serving a church there, and when I first moved there, I was like, what am I doing in New Jersey? Uh, why, why am I living here? And I remember taking a group of students to pick up some food, and I just naturally looked both ways and crossed the street, and they looked at me, and they stopped. They said, Pastor Richard, you just jaywalked. And I thought they were joking. I really thought they were joking. I was like, and I looked into their eyes and they were so serious. Like it was so bizarre to them. And it stopped them. And, and it would be almost as though in that moment, a SWAT team came and said, how dare you jaywalk, right? Children, you should always use the crosswalk. You should always, you know, look both ways and walk with mom and dad. But some rules are more important than others. 
Some rules, if we break them, the penalty is much more extreme and much, uh, much just bigger. And so here, when the Pharisees come to the disciples, they're not so appalled that they haven't washed their hands before a meal. Right? How would you even track that for every single meal that every single person has? That's not what they're here for. They're here to say, Jesus, you're teaching your disciples something that's against what we teach. How dare you? They're not asking an innocent question. And to this, Jesus actually talks about their tradition. See, the law that they're talking about, washing hands before eating food, it's not actually like, stated in the Bible. What's going on here is that they're quoting things from what's called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And these are Jewish writings that people, they would write, that scholars would write, to better understand God's word. And today we have commentaries, and you know, that's, I have some commentaries, and that's a lot of what we read to study the Bible, to better understand the Bible, resources to understand, you know, what does it mean to love, right? Because there are things that the Bible doesn't necessarily address. And that's what they were talking about. And you see, these documents, the Mishnah was written uh, over time and interpreted and reinterpreted and kind of built on. And what they started with was actually from the Bible. The priests would have to wash their hands before ministering to the people. Right? They would cleanse themselves physically, but also spiritually and in their hearts. So symbolically, they would be washing their hands to serve God's people. And they said, you know what? That's great. That's great. So let's have everyone wash their hands. And you know what? That's great, too. So let's have everyone wash their hands before they eat, because eating is so important. And they started building these laws, and some of them were very helpful. Some of them were a little off. And you see, it wasn't a bad thing that they were trying to do. It was actually very good intention to understand God's word. But you see, what ended up happening was that they used their own law, their own tradition, and they began to use that to compare themselves to other people. That's why the Pharisees have this reputation that if we read through the Bible, we see. Over time, they became legalistic. They became self-righteous to the point that Jesus says, you, know, you, you hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah, the prophet, and says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely, merely human rules. In those days, the religious elite, they became consumed with self-righteousness point that they couldn't recognize Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. If there was anyone in that day who should have been able to say, hey, this, this might be the God we've been waiting for, it should have been them. But they were gone to the point where they couldn't recognize him. Now you see, we see a lot of this even today, even in our churches today. See, if you grew up in church, you'll probably resonate with one of these. Some churches, and they're all good. I'm not bad-mouthing any church or any style of worship here. But in some churches, you must clap your hands. You must raise your hands. You must pray out loud to worship God. Otherwise, you're not really in it. You're not really devoting yourself to worship. If you just stand there and you don't do any of those things, it's almost rude. In other settings, they're actually more reserved, where they'll sit and stand following a liturgy, where they'll read things that are prepared words, where there won't be loud and crazy kind of um, dynamics. And the Bible actually talks about this, to be organized. And to do what was acceptable in the other church, to clap, to express yourself, to raise your hands, is actually considered to be rude. Now, both of these church styles and worship styles, they seek to honor God in ways that God says, this is how you worship me. 
The Bible talks about clapping, lifting hands, singing out, expressing oneself. The Bible talks about being reverent before God. But you see, these traditions, the bad side of it, when it's taken the wrong way, they take it. We might take those things, make them an ironclad rule and say, anyone who does not do what I do, anyone who doesn't worship God the way I worship, you're below me. Now, if you didn't grow up in church and you're not familiar, all of it seems a little weird because it's not stuff that we normally do. But you see, we tend to do this. We take something that might have started with such good intention, that might have been right, and we begin to twist and lose our way, and we can easily become self-righteous and prideful, just like the Pharisees. The reason why this happens is that it feels good to be able to say, I'm keeping the rules, I'm doing the right thing. And maybe it's not in a church or worship setting, but we tend to do this. I don't know if we is the proper word. I tend to do this. To say, I'm good enough, I am kind enough, I am kind to the people that I I should be kind to, and everyone else, ah, well, you can't be kind to everyone. And we begin to make excuses for ourselves. And even with our devotion to God, we say, ah, at least I do enough, I do X, Y, and Z, so I'm fine where I am. And you know, maybe we start with good intention, but when we neglect the heart, the hands, our actions, and the head, the way we think, become distorted. And these words that were said by Isaiah the prophet to the Israelites way back when, these words that Jesus Christ quoted and said of the Pharisees, they become words that speak of us. Now the question is, how do we then worship God with our hearts? This has been a question for the church from the beginning. And in the third century, there were people called the Desert Fathers. And they were Christians who decided, you know, to worship God, I need to separate from society. There's too much distraction. It's too loud. I need to separate in order to commune with God, to think of God, to pray, and to devote myself. And so people would actually end up coming to them seeking prayer and help and advice. They devoted their lives to God by separating themselves from society and living in the desert. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't sound very appealing. Um, See, I, um, probably most of you know, I, I go rock climbing. It's something that I picked up in the last two and a half years or so. Um, this was a couple of months ago. And when I tell people, I, I go, sorry, this is proof that it's me. <laughs> That's the extent of my technology. Um, and when I tell people I rock climb, they automatically assume I love the outdoors. That, I, like, camping, I'm the guy. Like, like I know all, like, the spots and things, but me personally, not so much. I love air conditioning. I love, you know, modern, you know, shelter and the things that we have, all the nice things. And I like hiking, but I'm not like a super outdoorsy person. Right? So when I hear about these desert fathers who lived in the desert to devote themselves to God, I'm like, that's great. But if I don't have to, I don't want to. And you see, I don't think that was the ideal or that's what God commanded of his people, that you must separate yourselves and live in the desert. But at the same time, what we have today in a lot of our churches, I don't think we have it right either. Coming to God at like a retreat every now and then, worshiping God on a Sunday, these things are phenomenal, but I don't think they encompass what God has in mind when he says, worship me with your heart. I think it takes much more than that. Henry Nouwen, he was actually a Catholic priest and a theologian. And he writes a lot about issues of the heart in multiple books. And one of the books that he he wrote, it talks about the Desert Fathers. 
and things that he learned from studying them and, and living a bit like them, maybe not in an actual desert. And he says this, spiritual practice are just the form. Right? Going into the desert is just the form. Right? Even when we talk about how to pray, when to pray, setting aside, those are all the form. And the actual substance is something much deeper. See, he says that the desert fathers, when they went to the desert, it was because they were looking for solitude. Room to be alone, without noise and, and the distraction that comes with just life. And all of that is still just form, pointing to substance. And the core point of worshiping God with our hearts is this, is to remember and receive God's grace. To remember and receive God's grace. Now, it's a simple solution to say that you know, the answer is Jesus, the answer is the gospel. See, if you've been in church long enough, if you've been a Christian long enough, it's easy to think of the gospel message as something we outgrow. God's grace becomes something we don't really need in our lives. It's no longer good news, but it becomes old and stale news. And the reason is because we don't recognize our sins. So when I say to remember and receive God's grace, really it's to um, recognize our sin. Because when we recognize our sin, we realize we need a Savior. We recognize we need grace. And I've said this before, we live in a world that doesn't give room to do this. We live in a world that actually has an aversion to failure and imperfection. Children nowadays, I don't know if it's still as intense, but children don't fail in school. When I was younger, and at least I can say that I experienced this, when I was younger, kids would fail, and kids would have to learn. But nowadays, children don't fail. Teachers walk on eggshells because they're going to be reprimanded for actually saying things how it is. Teachers are actually told in some schools not to use red ink because it might discourage the child. We live in a post-truth society, which means we can't point out truth all the time. I recently uh, met up with uh, somebody I went to high school with. We weren't really friends, but we kind of ran into each other multiple times, so we decided to catch up. And I, I shared with him, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I'm actually a pastor. I'm in ministry. And so that already came with a lot of questions because he, he grew up in like an Orthodox church, but it wasn't really a part of his life. And at one point, he said, you know, why do you, need, why do you need all of that? And I said, you know, because we're not perfect. We need Jesus. We need grace. And when I said that we're not perfect, he looked at me with, like, such concern. He's like, why? Why do you say that? I'm like, because I'm not. And he looked at me. He's like, don't say that. I'm like, why? He's like, you're perfect the way you are. And I'm like, I'm not. Like, that's the truth. Like, there's, how can you say that you're perfect? And he was so insistent. And honestly, honestly, that was the first time somebody had that re reaction with me. You know, I heard about, you know, we, we you know, always want to say people are perfect and good, but I've never actually had a conversation where someone was like, no, don't say that about yourself. And I was like, what's wrong with you, right? But that's kind of the society we live in where we can't even talk about our brokenness. We can't talk about our mistakes. We can't learn from them. We can't talk about imperfection. The ironic thing is that with all of that, the world and life and societal pressure, it says that we constantly have to prove that we're good and we're good enough. It's this weird, twisted message. We're told that we can't ever say that we're wrong, we can't talk about our mistakes, but at the same time, we must keep achieving and proving ourselves. 
And whether it's in college applications, whether it's through resumes, fitness and beauty standards, mommy blogs, parenting decisions, whatever the arena, the world is saying, you must prove that you are right and you are good enough. And with all of that, like society's subliminal slogan becomes, never say anyone is wrong, especially yourself. And so it becomes very easy and very convenient to tell ourselves, I am better than blank. I am good enough. And so in conflict and disagreement, it's easy to just be defensive. It's easy to simply say the other person started it. It's easy to say what they did to me is far worse or simply to shut down because we don't talk about these things. But the cold truth is that we are still sinful, we are still broken, we are still imperfect and in process. But with all of these excuses, it just becomes toxic. They become tools, actually. The things that we do and the things that we know, they become tools to hide away our deeper issues, to hide away this problem of sin. Now, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is that rather than telling ourselves this lie and having to prove to everyone around us and even to ourselves that we're good enough, Jesus invites us to say, I am not perfect. And nowadays, that might be you know, not so hard to say. I'm not perfect. But the equivalent statement that might be much harder to say is, I am wrong. I am wrong. And you see, the gospel invites us to say that openly and honestly and still find grace at the other end because of what Jesus has done. In Colossians, it says, you know, we were dead to our sin. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says we were enemies of God, but God came and he died for us so that we could have life with him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we see as probably like the best Christian ever, he says, I am the worst of sinners. And it's not, that's not a humble brag. That's not a, he's saying it to make people feel bad. Like, that's not what he's doing. But it's because as we grow in our faith, as we begin to remove sin from our lives, we see just how deep these problems run. But you see, to simply say that and to stay there is, is a terrible place to be. To simply say, I'm a terrible, a broken person, even after Jesus has saved me, I'm still broken and incomplete. To simply stay there is actually terrible. It's, you have to be sadistic to want to worship a God who leaves you there. But you see, God doesn't leave us there. And Paul says this, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. Every step we find that sin is deeper and deeper. Grace is already there. Jesus knew before we did, and Jesus already died for us so that we could have life with him. So the way we begin to worship God with our hearts is to recognize our sin, to recognize our need for God's grace, to never allow the gospel message to just become this stale, old thing that's sitting in the corner of our minds, but to say, thank you, Jesus. Now, again, to, to recognize it alone isn't enough, actually. And I feel like I keep saying this, like, there's more, there's more, but there's more. Um, we actually have to accept it. We have to accept it. And this is really important, especially for people who live in a place like around New York, because right? we're used to achieving, we're used to performing, being high performers. People tell me I would hate living in California. Because they're like, yeah, you'd probably enjoy it for two weeks and then you would just get fed up and you would want to like get stuff done and like get places quicker. And I believe it. Right? I've actually never been, but I believe it. 
But you see, we're in a society, we're in a cultural context where you know, we celebrate knowing the right things, doing the right things, being efficient, getting it all done. Right? And it actually feels good to be able to do that for ourselves. And the tendency for Christians is then to say, I'm, I'm good enough. Yeah, I'm broken, I'm sinful, but you know what? I can still achieve things. And we cling on to these things like they're going to save us. And what it really is, is arrogance before God. We say, God, yeah, you give me, you give me this so freely. And you say, recognize your sin and come to me, but I've got, I've got all the things that I've done. And it's arrogance. And it's ignorance to this cold truth that we are still sinful, imperfect, and broken. There's a hymn, The Wonderful Cross. Um, and like a lot of hymns, they, like somebody attached a modern chorus. It was Chris Tomlin for this one. Um, and the chorus that he adds says, The Wonderful Cross, The Wonderful Cross, it bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Come and die and find that I may truly live. And when I was younger and I would sing this song and I would hear it, I would think, yeah, I guess in heaven, eternity, like, right? When that actually happens, I can truly live. But actually, the song goes deeper to talk about the issues of the heart. Because to say, God, I'm broken, I can't save myself, I need you, feels like death. To say, I'm wrong, feels like death. That's why when we're in an argument with someone, even when you know you're wrong, you're just like, and you walk away. Because it's so hard to say, I'm wrong. It's a mini death. But you see, when we do that before God, to say, God, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. And I need you. That's where we begin to grow in our hearts. That's where we begin to experience life with God. And it's necessary for us to recognize our sin and to receive God's grace. God actually loves the Pharisees. A lot of times when we read the Bible and we read through you know, Jesus' life, we're like, oh, he has so much compassion for the sick, the broken, the poor, the oppressed. And this is true. And then when we see the Pharisees, we see Jesus you know, clearing out the temple, confronting them, proving them wrong. And we're like, oh, I don't know if that's love. But you know what? Jesus loved the Pharisees. He called them out in their sin. He actually beat them at their own game. See, the passage we looked at, they're like, oh, you have this problem because you're teaching your disciples to break these rules. And he's like, well, you're going against God. And there's no rebuttal. There's no, Jesus, you're actually wrong. He proves them wrong at their own game, not to shame them, but to say, you are broken and you don't have it together. I am Jesus. He loves them and he wants them to have him. But they're so blinded by their self-righteousness that they can't recognize their sin. They can't accept this grace. And you see, this can easily happen in our churches today. Where we're blinded by the world around us, where we don't have any time to set aside and worship God, where we don't recognize our sin for whatever reason, or we're so prideful in what we've attained that we don't want to let go and say, God, I need you. That we lose track of honoring God with our hearts. But there's something, there's a few things that happen when we actually do begin to do this. When we say, God, yes, I'm going to submit to you, and that makes me feel weak, but you know what? You're God, so it makes sense. There's a few things, and the first is that we find freedom. We find freedom from sin. Freedom from feeling like we need to prove ourselves all the time. The second thing it does is that it teaches us to trust God at his word. 
Because after laying ourselves down to find that there is life with Christ that is so much better, and then to hear things like he is faithful, that he's always in control, as we begin to live with him, we begin to trust him. Even in the hardest moments of life, we learn to trust him. And that's not a blind kind of a faith, but it's a faith that knows to trust God because he is good. The third thing that happens is that we become more like Christ. We become more like Christ. The sound breaks rhythm every time. But the third thing that happens is that we become more like Christ. And we talked about this the first week, and that's why the sticker here, it resembles the images we had that Sunday when we talked about the butterfly and the growth and growing pains. Learning to die to ourselves, that's growing pain. And becoming mature, it's actually becoming more like Christ. Now, the image that we have today for for the sermon in general, I don't know if you can jump to it real quick, because I don't think I put it in there next. The first slide. Um... It's a picture of a heart made out of fingerprints. No more stickers, no more stickers. Um, It's okay, you can kind of make it out, you can kind of see it um, in in the later parts of our service. But it's two fingerprints to to look like a heart. And what it symbolizes, and when I saw it, actually Pastor Martin put this together, and so he's very tech savvy and he's very artistic, and I'm like, I don't have that. Um, But when I saw it, I said, this is great. Because that's the cross section when our identity begins to shift closer and closer to Christ, when we become more like him, right, that's the beauty of the heart. When we begin to find grace for ourselves, when we begin to find a humility before God to be able to say, God, I'm not perfect and I need you, right, we begin to look more like Christ. And that can affect every area of our lives. It affects the head, it affects the hands, it affects our work, our family, all the relationships. And there's so many things, so many sermons we could preach and and talk about. But the first thing I want to focus in on is that when we have this grace for ourselves and we can come to God, we can have compassion for others. When we recognize that we've received grace, we can now pour out grace to others. For the poor, for the voiceless, for the oppressed. But even for people a little closer, the people you work with and engage regularly, and even people who have hurt us, we can have compassion. You see, the the Pharisees didn't have this. See, they they would have times when they would pray next to broken people, suffering people, and say, thank God I'm not like that sinner. And can you imagine if in our churches that actually happened? A lot of times we read these stories in the Bible and we say, okay, that's the Bible, great, done, move on. But imagine in our churches this happened And there was somebody who came feeling so heavy and in their hearts for for maybe sin in their lives or brokenness or they just needed help and they came seeking God and somebody stood next to them and said, thank God, I'm not like this sinner. They missed the point completely. And you see, when we recognize that we've received grace, not just once but continually, it opens us up to have compassion for others. The second thing, when we have humility before God, when we're able to admit before God that maybe I'm wrong and maybe God knows better, right? We learn to say something, and uh, this statement has actually, oh, I think it took us back, that um, this statement actually helped me a lot. Um, I, I was a very stubborn child, and I'm probably very stubborn even now, um, but there's a statement, and that's it. I could be wrong. 
I could be wrong. And for my age, I think I've had the privilege of hearing stories of married couples in different stages of life. And I find that the biggest thing, the biggest lesson to learn is communication, being able to communicate and letting the small things go. Right? And a lot of times communication stops because neither party can say this to themselves. I could be wrong. And that's not to say that Christians must always fold and say, no, I'm wrong, you have your way. But it's to say, let's stop being arrogant and thinking that I'm always right, that there's no way I can have any fault and simply have not just to say that, but to think it. Say, I could be wrong. So let me listen. You see, when we're able to, to say that to other people, I think it's so much easier to think of other people. Right? If we can't even say it to God, if we can't even come before God and say, I could be wrong, how could we even begin to think about going home or going up to other people and saying, I could be wrong? Right? It's a platform for communication. The third thing, the third thing that I want to talk about that this does when we begin to grow in our hearts to be more like Christ is that we recognize brokenness in the world. We recognize brokenness in the world. And we live in a very broken world. And I feel like every five years, I begin to hear people say, oh, this is the worst the world has ever been. And I'm like, no, no, that's just the world we live in. It's broken. People suffer. And it's easy for us to flip through our feeds and simply move on it's easy for us to help a little bit and feel good. And helping is awesome, it's phenomenal, but there is something that Christians have been called to. God's people have done from very early on, and it's simply to lament, to recognize this brokenness and to weep. It's so much easier to give the right word of advice It's so much easier to point to truth and say, okay, now you know it, let's move on from this pain. It's so much easier to say, I have the solution here, let me help you, and be done with it. It's so much harder to say, this sucks, and to leave it there, and to weep, and to sit with people, and to say, this is painful. And we get so uncomfortable, and we want to fix the problem right away, but Christians have been called to show compassion through lament. See, even the church is broken. People get hurt in churches. Um, I think ever since I went to seminary, I found myself in positions uh, where people would simply, they would start sharing like all their hurts from their churches. And I guess if you go to seminary and you tell people you want to be bad, that's like one of the first things. Um, they associate you with every pastor and church interaction and I found myself in these conversations where I find that I need to apologize for hurt that's caused by the church, even if it's not me, even if it's not even like my current church, to simply say, I'm sorry you were hurt. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And without saying, well, this is how it's supposed to be, or, you know, you should try again and you should be open because it matters. Before saying any of that, simply letting it sit, I'm sorry. It's not the way it's supposed to be. as we learn to worship God with our hearts, and as we begin to look more and more like Him, we naturally show the world more of who He is. In our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, and even to one another here. 